As we prepare to receive God's word for us, let us pray for illumination. Prepare our hearts, Holy One, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your good and life-giving will. In Christ, amen. A reading from the Gospel according to John. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What? are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. I add my greetings uh, to Jana's, to all of you who have returned for our two-service schedule as of today, and uh, a warm welcome back to the Knox Choir. Wonderful to have you singing with us again as we gather here for worship. There are volunteers I know still at work getting ready for our Knox Rocks party outside immediately after the service. 
It's a good day to say thank you, for me to say thank you to all of you, and for me to recommend that you find somebody uh, in a volunteer role or on the church's staff to say thanks to today. It takes many hands uh, to prepare for a big day like today, and it's good to be with you. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for your presence among us through your spirit and your holy word. Open our hearts and minds to what you are saying to us today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we start the fall together, and for the very, very next several weeks, I'm going to be following the children's Sunday school curriculum as I select texts for the sermons each week. I'm going to be preaching on the same texts our children are studying downstairs. Why? Well, for one thing, in this intergenerational community, it allows for us to be connected to what we are teaching our children. You may have a child or a grandchild or a young friend with whom this creates an opportunity to ask about what they are learning. There are other goods that go along with this as well. The stories that we teach in Sunday school are some of the more dynamic and descriptive stories in the Bible, great for teaching children. But those same stories also include deep insights. Many of you who have taught Sunday school might have been asked a deep question, even by a seven or eight-year-old child, one that you weren't sure how to answer and that an adult might not always be bold enough to ask. In this series, I'll be exploring the deeper meaning of some of the stories that many of you learned in Sunday school. And we'll be talking about the layers of, the, of questions that they present to more mature readers. This morning's lesson comes from the Gospel according to John, and it is one of several accounts of the calling of the first disciples. Each one of the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each tell this story of the calling of the disciples, and each one tells it in a different way. The version that I remember most clearly from my childhood Sunday school is the one in the Gospel of Matthew. In that one, Jesus calls Andrew and his brother Simon Peter. They are fishing, and he calls out to them, as it says in the old revised standard version of the Bible, follow me, and I will make you fishers of fish. I will make you fishers of men. Yes, many of you remember that from your Sunday school class. Our ancient scriptures are rich in wisdom, not always as much so in gender inclusion. Jesus continues on to two more fishermen, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they hear Jesus' command, come and follow me, and immediately they leave the mending of their tents, and they go. I have some clear memories about this story and the way it was taught to me. I think I must have been taught that Jesus was persuasive to the point of being magical. 
Who wouldn't want to catch people rather than fish? I know that idea was internalized in me. Of course, that must be more important. And now, after two decades of full-time ministry, I have a renewed appreciation for a day of catching fish. (laughs) The other thing I remember, other than how persuasive Jesus must have been, is that these first disciples who had no prior knowledge or experience of Jesus, it says that they immediately left their nets and went and followed them, followed him, changing their lives forever. And that word, immediately, it's right there in the scripture. It's a good interpretation. Immediately, Matthew says, they got up and left. Follow enthusiastically. Go immediately. I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that childhood interpretation, especially if you're seven or eight years old. The idea that Jesus' way of life must have been compelling and better than any other alternative, that does seem to be what we want to teach our children. As an adult, though, I have other questions. Questions I don't remember asking when I was a kid. I wonder about these first disciples. Who were they? And why did they follow? Were they anything like me or like you, us modern disciples who come to church on Sunday? Why did they follow? Were these fishers of men in midlife crisis? Were they looking for any given excuse to leave their current situation? Maybe there was an external problem. Maybe the price or availability of fish had changed and they were desperate and poor and had nothing to lose. Maybe the reasons were more hopeful. Maybe they were looking hard and intentionally for a better life. And maybe there was something really compelling about this Jesus. What was it? Well, here, let's shift from that version in the Gospel of Matthew to the one we heard this morning, John's version of the story. It's different than Matthew's. It's the one our children are learning downstairs today. In John's version, the disciples do not just seem to follow blindly. No, no, no. These disciples are curious. You need to know something about the context of this story. The setup for this version in the Gospel of John is the story of John the Baptist. You might remember that John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus, and he preaches out in the wilderness to get people excited about Jesus' ministry before it ever begins. John is hugely popular. He has gathered a following because he really speaks to the needs and struggles of his time and place. King Herod, who is the monarch in the area, he has grown jealous and is threatened by John the Baptist and his popularity. And John is not preaching about himself. 
He's constantly pointing to someone else, a real Savior, one who is on the way to help people change their hearts and their lives. And then after all of this build-up, all of this enthusiasm that has gathered around John the Baptist, one day John is sitting with his disciples and Jesus himself comes walking by and John says to them, that's him. That's the one I've been telling you about all along. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the background. And then on to the story. What happens when Jesus calls these disciples? Well, John's version may provide more questions than it does answers, but it also does quite a bit to address my curiosity about these disciples and how they might be like you and me. Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel are their names. They are these four people who have been around John the Baptist. They've bought into his program. They like the idea that there is a savior out there who might be able to change their lives for the better. But on that day when Jesus finally walks along, he is brand new to them. And they are not ready to blindly follow like those fishermen in Matthew's story. They are curious, and they are even doubting. And for them, this next step of the story, this happens at a critical point between their wonder and their curiosity about God and the real commitment that will be required if they actually want their lives to change. Let's look at some of the details, and in particular the questions that come up in this story. In this version, initially, Jesus says nothing at all. It is the disciples who will make the first move. John the Baptist points out Jesus to Andrew, who is curious enough to get up and follow as Jesus walks down the road. Jesus senses that he's being followed, and he turns to Andrew and simply but also deeply asks a question, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And not quite sure how to answer, Andrew follows up with another curious question. Teacher, where are you staying? Andrew wants to know more. Nathaniel, in the next part of the story, is more skeptical. When John announces Jesus as the son of Joseph from Nazareth, Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, this is just as discriminatory and insulting as it sounds. It's kind of like somebody from Hyde Park asking if anything good could come out of Shiviet or the other way around. What does the insult mean for Nathaniel? 
Well, Nathaniel has been studying the Hebrew scriptures since childhood, and he knows that there is no word about a Savior coming from Nazareth. So when Jesus passes by, Nathaniel says, what is so special about that ordinary man walking along the road? The common thread between these two little exchanges, the first one with Andrew, the second one with Nathaniel, they're obviously written in parallel. The common thread is Jesus' next move. Jesus does not just command them, follow me. When Andrew asks where Jesus is staying, and when Nathaniel can't believe this is the one, Jesus says to each of them, Come and see. Come and see. It's an invitation. Invitations are different than commands. You can refuse an invitation. So an invitation has to be attractive enough for people to want to accept it. And what you find when you arrive has got to be good enough for you to tell other people about it so they'll want to come if they're invited. Invitations involve some risk. And the Jesus in this story, in this telling of the story, he's comfortable with all of that. Come and see. He says to them, I have a feeling you'll be glad you did. I have a feeling you're not going to regret it. Follow me is the command I remember hearing in Sunday school as a child. But come and see. That's the invitation that is compelling to me as an adult. Jesus apparently has something to show me, something for me to observe about his way of being and how it leads to a fuller and richer life. He wants me to take a look at it and decide if I want to come even closer and let his way of life become a part of mine. The journey that follows may not be an easy one, but it is one that is worth it. In the weeks that follow, that's where this sermon series will go. But for today, let's stay a little bit longer with this moment of invitation. Because it's something to take seriously. This is the moment where one might decide if curiosity about Jesus, if wonder about God, is enough to get us to follow and make some commitments in our lives. Who is this Jesus, you might wonder? Could he possibly have anything to show me that I don't know already? What is his meaning for the world today and for the life I'm living? A stroke of genius in this very short story is that in in it, Jesus is referred to with no less than seven different titles. I've already shared with you that he is called Son of Joseph from Nazareth and Lamb of God. 
He's also called other things, Rabbi, Messiah, him about whom Moses wrote, Son of God, King of Israel. All of these titles occur in the same little introductory story. And you could have an adult Sunday school class about the biblical origins of everyone and indicate that they are all different and each one means something about who Jesus might be. He has roots deep in biblical and religious tradition and he comes from a nowhere town. He knows how to teach and he knows how to listen. He's identified as a spiritual master, and he is as accessible as a regular person walking along the road. Perhaps the most curious thing about this story, and the most miraculous thing about Jesus, is his refusal to be defined or narrowed in any way. He would seem to have this endless ability to meet us where we are and take each of us where we need to go. He asks every one of us, what are you looking for? And he is ready for whatever we might say next. So when Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel alike are curious, and when any one of us is as well, he is ready to reply, come and see. I wonder what your question might be for Jesus. There are plenty of good ones to ask him. Can Jesus give me real guidance as I try to navigate life? Will I find his way to be a joyful way of living? Will it encourage me when I feel hopeless? Can Jesus offer any response to homelessness in Cincinnati or war in Ukraine, fires in Maui or earthquakes in Morocco? Will this faith see me through my own grief and loss? Will Jesus give me purpose as I shape a meaningful life? Will faith in him give me a reliable place to call home when I've made a mistake and find myself lost? Is anything about Jesus worth not just inconvenience, but sacrifice. How do you answer these things, Jesus? And he replies, come and see. It's a story that for me has its roots in childhood Sunday school, but it's working on me yet today. It's a story that happens at this place where wonder and commitment come together. In response to this story, people new to the faith may say, I have had an experience of awe. Now what am I going to do about it? And lifelong believers may ask different questions. I've been following at a distance all my life. If I decide to finally go deeper... 
What will that be like? Might I be disappointed? What does Jesus have to say to me? I have hopeful questions about the calling of these first disciples. I have wondered if asking come and see in adulthood could ultimately lead back to the follow me of childhood, a return to greater simplicity in a complicated world, a north star in dizzying times, a savior I can trust enough to follow instead of just question and doubt. Could it be that Jesus' invitation is so attractive that it eclipses every other? Could it be that submitting to his instruction to follow me is the only way to real freedom? Jesus says to these and to all of the questions we bring, come and see. Come and see. Amen.